This is the word of the God. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave these few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, so he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet with David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of the armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, you have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christine. There is no argument. Today's world is safer than any time before. With advancements in technology, medicine, and the global economy, the world we live in is more secure than ever. Just a hundred years ago, millions across the world used to die from hunger due to famine and drought. Today, however, if people starve to death, it's not because there's not enough food, it's because of political reasons, it's because their political leaders have chosen not to prioritize the well-being of their people. 
While viruses and disease still impact the world today, and we know it for sure, we are still safer due to advancements in medicine and technology. Can you imagine how many more millions of people that would have died had it not been for the vaccine, had it not been for the invention of ventilators? When the Black Death spread through Asia, Africa, and Europe, it's estimated that 25% of the population perished. But today, we have multiple weapons at our disposal, minimizing the impact of disease. While war still exists today in pockets of the world, war has become increasingly rare. Death by violence, more than a century ago, used to account for 15% of all global deaths. In the 20th century, it shrunk to 5%. Today, it accounts for 1% of global mortality. And yet, despite all of these advancements, though we live in a safer world than ever before, though we live in a city that boasts being the safest city in America, fear abounds. Anxiety abounds. Prescription medicine for anxiety abounds. How many of us stay up late at night and can't fall asleep because our minds are spinning out of control? How many of us feel a tightening knot in our guts because we're so overwhelmed by worry? How many of us are racked with anxiety over our finances, our future? How many of us worry about our kids and how they will grow up? How many of us are worrying about our aging parents and how they will age? How many of us are dealing with strained marriages, insecure work situations? It's not surprising that the most repeated command in all the Bible is fear not. Pastor Lloyd Ogilvie says that the command appears 366 times in the Bible. That's one for every day of the year, including leap year. We need to hear that command, fear not, because every day you and I struggle with fear, don't we? It's kind of ironic and counterintuitive, but the more I get older, the more I realize how much I struggle with fear. You think that fear is something that little children wrestle with, and it's something you kind of age out of as you get older. But the older I get, the more therapy I receive, the more I realize just how much of a hold fear has in my heart. Fear is a powerful influence and drives so much of our unconscious behavior. For example, a parent might struggle to say no to their child because he or she has a fear of rejection. 
A parent might struggle to say yes to their child because he or she has a fear of losing control. A man who has a hard time saying no to his boss might have a fear of disapproval. The thought of disapproving, the thought of disappointing his boss just causes his heart to cringe. Someone who refuses to admit they are wrong, someone who refuses to get help for addiction might have fear of humiliation. Someone who suffers from codependency, whose life is enmeshed with someone else's, has a fear of abandonment. So much of our surface behavior is driven by subterranean fears. No one is immune. It drives so much of our behavior. What are your fears, friends? Fear is what we see in our passage. The hearts of Israel are stricken with fear. It's palpable you can feel it in the air. In verse 11, we are told that Israel lost their courage and were terrified. It literally says their hearts dropped. Their hearts dropped. Verse 24 says that all the Israelite men retreated and were terrified. Before I get into what they're terrified of, let me briefly set up the context of our passage. The events of our story take place at the Valley of Soko, a valley that you can still visit today, and from those who have visited, say that the valley is about a mile wide with two mountains on each side, and the mountains don't have that many trees, which enables clear viewing of the valley below. And on one side of the valley, you have the Philistines, and on the other side of the valley stand the Israelite army. The Philistines are the mortal enemies of Israel. Throughout the book of 1 Samuel, their threat can be seen all over the place. It's a threat that King Saul deals with all of his life, and later on when Saul dies, it's actually while fighting against the Philistines. The Philistines were known for their technological advancements, especially in the area of metallurgy. They were one of the first civilizations to develop bronze and iron. And we see that in our passage. We are told that Goliath was decked out with a bronze helmet, a bronze scale armor, and a bronze javelin outfitted with an iron tip. These details are meant to intimidate the Israelites. Speaking of Goliath, he was an imposing figure. Some Hebrew manuscripts describe Goliath as being six cubits and a span, which is approximately nine feet, nine inches tall. That's what's reflected in the CSB. There are other Hebrew manuscripts that we've discovered that describe Goliath as four cubits and a span, which would make him six feet, nine inches tall. However you fall on the, the textual divide, Goliath lives up to his name. He was a hulking giant. 
What's important to note is that in verse 4, Goliath is described as a champion. That word translated as champion literally means as the man of the between. He goes between his soldiers and the Israelites. He stands as the representative champion of the Philistine army. And there at the valley floor, Goliath issues a challenge. He challenges the Israelites to send in their champion, Israel's go-between, and engage him in a life-or-death fight. If Israel's champion wins, then all the Philistines will become their slaves. But if he wins, then all of Israel will become their slaves. And so the stakes are high. The, the livelihood of two nations hang in the balance. And that's the setting of this historic battle. Now, my sermon's going to be divided into three parts. These parts are the failure of the king, the rise of the true king, and the hope of the king of kings. So the failure of the king, the rise of the true king, and the hope of the king of kings. First, the failure of the king. One thing our passage makes painfully clear is that King Saul fails. He fails. I shared last week how for the Israelites back then, their conception of a king was not primarily to rule or govern over the nation, but their conception of a king was primarily that of a warrior. They believed a king should fight and defend his people, which explains why they loved Saul, because he was a head taller than everyone else. He was strong. He was impressive. He was that warrior king they imagined. This uh, conception of a king is found in 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20 where all the people say, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So when Goliath offers his challenge and asks for Israel's champion to come forward, who do you think everyone expected would come forward from Israel? This is underscored even more by the fact that Goliath drops Saul's name in his challenge. In verse 8, Goliath says, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of who? Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. And so everyone's looking around, where's Saul? This is why we elected him. This is his time to shine but he's nowhere to be found. Verse 11 reads, When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. The author doesn't just say, and all of Israel became terrified. No, the author says, and Saul and all of Israel became 
terrified. The author is throwing Saul under the bus. Saul, the supposed champion of Israel, is no different from the rest. He is just as terrified and shrinks back like everyone else. And it's into this backdrop of cowardice and fear that the true king arrives. David arrives onto the scene, but no one thought even for a second that David would be the king that Israel needs. At this point, David is not old enough to be a soldier. He's likely only a young teenager, and his current role is nothing more than being a modern-day Uber Eats driver. He is sent by his dad with bread and cheese to bring the food to his brothers on the front line and check in on their well-being. That's all he's trusted enough for, to deliver food to the soldiers. While delivering this food, David overhears Goliath mocking and taunting Israel. He hears Goliath blaspheming the name of God, making a mockery of the people of God, and he's livid. He's looking around and wondering, am I the only one who's upset? Why is no one going forth? Why is there no one defending our people? In verse 26, David blurts out, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And it's at this point, you might think some of the soldiers might rally around David and say, yeah, what are we doing? We need to fight. But to our surprise, David is met with rebuke. David's oldest brother, Eliab, attempts to put him in his place. He says in verse 28, Why'd you come down here? Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? Notice what Eliab is doing. He's trying to shame David. What'd you do with the sheep? In other words, David, you're not a soldier. You're a lowly shepherd. It's kind of like that eight-year-old boy who runs towards his older brother who's hanging out with his friends, and he's like, can I play with you? Can I play with you? And the older brother says, dude, you're supposed to be in the sandbox. What are you doing here? And so he slinks away and walks away sad. But David will not be humiliated. He continues and won't back down. Word eventually reaches Saul, and so Saul summons David, and he continues to put David in his place. Verse 33 says, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he's young. David, what are you thinking? Goliath has been fighting longer than you've been alive. And yet, David won't back down. He persuades Saul to let him go and fight. And we all are familiar how this story ends. Goliath, seeing the puny David with nothing more than a sling and a stick, laughs and mocks David and his God. David declares that he doesn't need a sword, a javelin, or shield 
because God is on his side and God will be the one who grants him victory. And so David pulls out a stone, slings it towards Goliath. It hits him square in the forehead. He's knocked out cold. David walks over, grabs his giant sword and chops off his head. This is the stuff of movies, right? How many times have we seen that scene in a movie? Our passage screams at us. David is the true king. Saul is not. David does everything that Saul fails to do. David lives by faith while Saul lives by sight. David is the warrior, the protector, the defender that Israel needs. For Saul, all he could see is Goliath. When he looked out of the windshield of his life, Goliath took up his entire purview. Goliath's bronze armor, bronze shield, bronze javelin. And so he cowers. But for David, when he looked out of the windshield of his life, yes, he sees Goliath in the foreground, but he sees much more than just Goliath. Beyond Goliath stood the living God of heaven and earth. Beyond Goliath stood the all-powerful God who holds the galaxies and stars in the palm of his hands. A God whose presence is so holy, it melts the mountains like wax. A God who can silence typhoons and cyclones with the mere word of his power. And because David is able to see God in the background, he can run forward and fight. If you think about it, the real enemy of our story is not Goliath. The real enemy are not the Philistines. The true enemy here in chapter 17 is the enemy of unbelief. Israel forgot God. Saul forgot God. And that's why they cower in fear. That's why they shrink back in terror. And so the true enemy that faced them was not someone standing before them, but something lurking inside their own hearts. So how does God want us to apply the story of David and Goliath? What's the application here? Well, let me tell you what it's not. This story is not telling us that if you believe in God and trust in God, if you have enough faith, you can overcome the giants of your life. Whether you're dealing with an addiction, a strained relationship, resentment, depression, bankruptcy, you name it, all you need to do is believe in God and run at your giant and defeat him. Our passage is not telling you to be like David 
to pull up your bootstraps, remember God, and charge at your fears. David is not simply a source of inspiration for us to conquer our giants. You see, when you read this passage in light of the entire Bible, when you read it in the context of Genesis to Revelation, you'll discover that God doesn't want you to identify with David. Come on, be like David. Rather, God wants you to identify yourself with Saul. You're like Saul. How many of us here can say that you are what you're supposed to be? How many of us here can say, I am the husband I always dreamt I would be when I was young? I am the mother I always dreamt I would be. I am the son and daughter that my parents deserve. I am the neighbor God calls me to be. I am the salt and light that God has shaped me to be. No problem. I don't know about you, but when I'm alone with my thoughts, when I have time to reflect and pray, my prayers are not, God, thank you for creating me. My kids are so blessed to have me as their father. Thank you that I get to pastor New Life. New Life is so lucky to have me as their pastor. My parents, they must be so proud of me. If only they knew how much I do for them. No. My prayer life is the converse. God, forgive me for losing my patience with my kids. Forgive me for not reaching out to my parents enough. Forgive me for not praying and loving my congregation enough. What faces me are all of the ways I fall short, all of the ways I am not what I'm supposed to be, and many times the reason why there's such a gap between what God wants and what I do is because of fear. Fear holds me back. If we're honest with ourselves, then instead of making fun of Saul in our passage, we find ourselves identifying with him. But this leads us to the third part of my sermon. As much as God invites us to identify with Saul, he also points us to the king of kings. I mentioned before that the word champion means man of the between. It's a very rich world, that word that touches on a very important biblical theme, and that's the theme of, and I'm going to get a little theological here, covenant headship. The Bible is arranged by covenant heads 
who act as representatives of their people so that their success becomes their people's success or their failure translates down to their people's failure. We see this in the opening chapters of the Bible with Adam and Eve. Why does everyone fall with them? Because Adam was a covenant head. But this is not a a foreign principle for you and I. We see this principle all over the place. Some of you right now are wearing 49er jerseys. Today, the 49ers act as covenant representatives for their millions of fans so that if they win, all of their fans will be shouting, we won. You're participating in their victory. No, this is not a prophecy. This is hypothetical. Don't come after me and say, yeah, you promised, all right? If they lose... Guess what? You're depressed. You're angry. You're sad. Some of us will be crying. Why? Because you're sharing in their failure, in their loss. That's covenant headship on a surface level. That's what we see here with David and Goliath. David acts as the covenant head in this situation for Israel, Goliath for the Philistines. But you see, David, though he's successful here, will not be that great of a champion later. He will fall spectacularly. He will disqualify himself. And he is not the champion Israel needs. But a thousand years later, the son of David would come. Another champion would arise, coming out of seemingly nowhere. And where Adam fell, where David fell, Jesus would succeed. Except Jesus would not simply face a political opponent But Jesus would take on the ultimate enemy of enemies, the ultimate giant that loomed over all of human history, an undefeated enemy, and that enemy is sin and death. Sin is that enemy that plagues all of our hearts, that desire for autonomy, that desire to live not for God, but to live for our own glory, our own name, our own pleasure. And because of that sin, it's caused a a separation from us and our holy God. There's alienation there. And so many of us think that the emptiness inside that we feel is because we don't have enough money. It's because we're not experiencing relational love. It's because we're not successful or famous enough. No, that emptiness you feel, it's because God is not there. And so Jesus would come to tackle this enmity, this sin that separates us from God. But the weapons he would wield are not like the weapons of the world. 
He does not come armed with sword, spear, or sling. But he comes armed with love, a towel, and a basin. In order to slay sin, he would fight by submitting. He would win by surrendering. He would lay down his life as an atonement and sacrifice, absorbing the wrath of God for our sin. In order to defeat sin, he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is why Easter is so important to the gospel story. When Jesus emerged from the grave, what you have is his podium moment. Later today, the victorious team will go up to a podium and hoist up a trophy. Easter is Jesus' podium moment where he is publicly declaring to the world, I have won. I did it. I defeated sin and death. And the good news of this story is that all those who believe in Jesus, who trust in him as their Lord and Savior, participate in his victory, share in his victory. We become his representative people. And so the primary focus of David and Goliath is not you. The primary question is not, are you like David? Go be like David. Rather, the primary question is, Do you know Jesus? Look at what he's done for you. He is the hero of our story. God wants us to look at the ultimate champion who defeated the greatest giant of all. He is the king that we need. Now with that being said, does this mean that There's no personal takeaways from David and Goliath. We just go from Saul to David and Jesus, and that's it, and we walk away. No. Though Jesus is the hero of our story, though he's the focus of our story, his victory has profound implications for his people. We even see this In our passage, after David defeats Goliath, what happens? The Israelites get excited. The Israelites get involved. Verse 52 says, The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. What is happening? David's victory emboldens them. Their fear is gone, and now they go in pursuit of the Philistines. As you can see, the Philistines didn't honor their covenant agreement. In the same way, Jesus' victory at the cross and the empty tomb enables us 
frees us to now go confront our fears. Because Jesus slayed the greatest giant of all, it enables us to now confront the lesser giants of our lives. Let me give you a few examples so you can connect the dots. Because Jesus won, we no longer need to fear the future. Because Jesus conquered sin, we can be confident that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Whatever comes our way, whatever blessing or affliction, because Jesus died on the cross, we know that that blessing or affliction is an expression of God's love. Because Jesus won, we no longer need to fear failure. Whether you're laid off, whether you're fired, whether your business declares bankruptcy, whether your marriage ends in divorce, whether your your children walk out on you or end up in jail, those failures will hurt, but they will not crush you. Why? Because Jesus is your ultimate victory. You are not defined anymore by your earthly failures. You are defined by Christ's victory. Because Jesus won, we no longer need to fear disapproval. We can speak the hard truth to others we can share the gospel with our coworkers. We can say no to people and draw healthy boundaries, even though they'll be disappointed in us. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Because Jesus won, we no longer need to fear humiliation. We can be vulnerable and tell our brothers and sisters our deepest struggles, our private struggles, and not fear about what they might think of us. Why? Because Jesus is our righteousness, our shield, our advocate, our defender. Because Jesus won, we no longer need to fear abandonment. Our lives no longer have to be enmeshed with someone else's life in order for us to feel significant or secure. Why? Because our lives are united to Christ and he makes us whole and secure, not anyone else. I can list example after example of how Jesus' victory unlocks our ability to overcome the obstacles and giants of our lives. He slayed the giant of sin, enabling us to confront the lesser giants. As 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. I used to not really understand this verse. What does love have to do with fear? But now I see the more loved you realized you are, the more loved you experience in Christ the less you fear about the things of the world, it's going to be okay. Brothers and sisters, friends, Jesus is our champion who fought valiantly for us. 
May it liberate us from the fears that dog us and follow us around, clothed in the armor of God, embracing the truths of the gospel. May we step out in faith and live in the freedom and victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our covenant champion. We thank you that in his victory over sin and death, we share in that victory. We thank you that we are perfectly loved and secure and made worthy because of the gospel. And I pray, O oh Lord, that as those who drink deeply from this well, you would enable us to no longer allow our fears to grab such a, a hold of us and that you would actually transform us and compel us, Lord, to face and overcome our fears. So we thank you, Lord, for the hope that you give in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.